Welcome to the Football Pink podcast, hosted by Roddy Cairns. The Football Pink is a website, magazine and documentary podcast series bringing you long-form stories and nostalgia from across the world of football. The World Cup is, without a doubt, the pinnacle of international football. Every four years, the best players come together for a jamboree of colour, sound, skill and goals. We all remember key images from those tournaments. Zidane's double against Brazil, Maradona's hand of God. Some folk in England may even remember them doing quite well in 1966. But one of the less well-remembered, but undoubtedly most iconic World Cup moments came in the 1954 final. On this week's episode of the Football Pink Podcast, we remember the miracle of Bern, its architect Sepp Herberger, and the majestic Hungarian team who found themselves in the role of unlikely bridesmaids. Heavy rain had made the pitch muddy and difficult to come to terms with. There was a phrase in Germany, Fritz Walter Wetter, or Fritz Walter Weather. Herberger was the first in a long line of German coaches who believed his job was to field the best team rather than the team of the best players. To put into context what happened in Bern, we first need to consider the state of Germany in 1954. This was, of course, just nine years after the end of the Second World War. The once mighty Germany had been divided in two, administered half by the Western Allies and half by the Soviet Union. West Germany, the capitalist part, was not a particularly prosperous place at this stage. The Wunderschaft, or economic miracle that would ultimately turn the nation into a major financial power, had yet to take root. Groups of women all over the country, some of whom had lost husbands, sons and fathers in the war, scrabbled on their hands and knees in the ruined buildings rebuilding Germany brick by brick. They became known as the Trümmerfrau, or rubble women, and their efforts came to symbolise those difficult post-war years. The national mood was conflicted, as Football Pink contributor Pete Spencer recalls. On the one hand, the people were struggling to come to terms with the horrific crimes of the Nazis and the guilt that entailed. Many had only found out about these atrocities after the war had ended whilst others had kept themselves in a state of denial that they could no longer justify. On the other hand, there was the shame of total and utter defeat and the humiliation of occupation by foreign powers. West Germany needed something to rally behind, something that was devoid of the harmful side of nationalism, but at the same time had enough of the positive element of that phenomenon to give them a sense of national pride and a reason to be positive about the new and confusing country. As is so often the way, football offered just the right sort of flag to rally behind, in the shape of Sepp Herberger and his West German national side. Sepp Herberger may not be a particularly well-known figure in the English-speaking world, but in Germany he's considered to be arguably the most important coach in the nation's history. It's quite possible that modern German football as we know it would not exist without this quiet, studious man from Mannheim. Football Pink contributor Andrew Haynes looks back on what we know about the coach. Herberger was a quiet and obsessive man. Football was his life and he doesn't seem to have had many interests outside of the beautiful game. He had led the German national team since before the war and had escaped the purge of the NSDAP members after 1945. Herberger's political allegiances have always been a matter of debate in Germany. 
The most likely conclusion is that he had none. His sole reason for existence in life seemed to be football, and that was his primary concern. All leading figures in public life were expected to join the Nazi party, and Herberger did so under advice from DFB colleagues, seemingly so that he could continue to coach the national team. However, he seems to have had no commitment to the Nazi ideology. There are some stories of him coming to the aid of a Jewish man that was being beaten by Hitler's stormtroopers. During the war, Herberger's team was, unsurprisingly, severely depleted as many of his best players were sent to the front. The only way to be granted leave to return home was to be awarded the Iron Cross for military bravery. Herberger would falsify papers to show that his players had won the Iron Cross, even though they had not done so as to protect them from the dangers of war and to ensure that they were available for important matches. Not only does this suggest that Herberger cannot have had any deep-rooted dedication to the Nazi war effort, but it also demonstrates his extreme single-minded commitment to his players and to the German national team, since falsifying military records could be punishable by being sent to a concentration camp. The fact that Herberger was willing to risk this for the sake of his players also explains why the majority of them were so fiercely loyal to him. As football returned to some sort of normality after the end of World War II, one nation emerged as clear world beaters. Hungary. They were essentially an army team and were fittingly orchestrated by the galloping major, Ferenc Puskas. He was backed by able deputies in the form of Zoltán Chaibor, Joseph Boschik, Nandor Hidekuti and Sandor Kosis. Many of the squad were chosen from the top Hungarian side at the time, Honved. From those players mentioned, only Hidekuti played elsewhere. After World War II, Hungary was under the grip of communism as a satellite state of the Soviet Union. Living in a police state, the national football team soon became a release for many in the country. They were coached by Gustav Shebesh, a visionary who changed the way football was played. For most of the 20th century, football had been played by teams adopting a W formation. Shebesh brought in a formation we now know as 4-2-4. He believed in a socialist style in that every player had equal responsibility and should be able to play in any position. Fast forward to 1974 and the Dutch total football wasn't quite as revolutionary as you thought. Puskas was the talisman, probably the best player in the world at the time and despite his slightly podgy build, was capable of bringing the best out of his teammates. He also possessed a powerful left foot shot. Alongside him was Kocic, top scorer in European leagues in 1952 and 1954. He was known as Golden Head for his fierce heading ability, but he was also skilled on the deck. They were known at home as the Golden Team and abroad as the Magical Magyars or the Magnificent Magyars. One of the events which made the wider world set up and take notice of this side was the so-called Match of the Century against England at Wembley. This match came at a time when English football considered itself to be the most dominant style in world football. Now there was some justification for this, of course. The English had been one of the nations which spread the footballing gospel around the world and had competed against Scotland in the first ever international match. Since that time, the national side had only ever lost one international match at home. However, the English, who continued to use an outdated WM formation, found themselves on the receiving end of a comprehensive 6-3 defeat to the Hungarians at Wembley in 1953, a result which sent shockwaves around the footballing establishment and showed just how devastating this Hungary side could be. One tactic which undid the English was the use of Hidakute. Teams generally played with one up front and two on either side, but at Wembley, Hidakute dropped deeper into a sort of number 10 or false 9 position, giving opposition defences the problem of whether to move out and mark him or to leave him unmarked. 
The space he created was then occupied by either Puskas or players like Sibor. One other important aspect of their play was the link between Puskas at inside left and Bosic at right half. The two had been friends since childhood and had an almost telepathic understanding, with Bosic's diagonal passes from right midfield finding Puskas's runs. Formations back then were still pretty rigid, so the changes Serbes brought in took time for opposing coaches to come to terms with. At The Football Pink, we understand the passion you have for your own icons of football. That's why we've combined our unique creatives and our knowledge of football to produce the most beautiful range of football art available to you. There's a whole collection dedicated to playing icons, meaning you could own a unique piece of artwork detailing Socrates, Zidane or Pirlo in all their glory. Just visit www.footballpink.shop to browse the entire collection. Going into the 1954 World Cup, West Germany were complete unknowns. Since the war, they had been banned from competing in FIFA competitions, so 1954 was their first chance of qualifying. Their players were part-time, with many having other jobs to fall back on. Herberger had looked to build his team around several of the successful Kaiserslautern side, including captain Fritz Walter. Fritz Walter was joined in the team by his brother Ottmar, as die Rossen Teufel contributed five players to the squad. No other club had more than two representatives. Fritz Walter was by far the most experienced member of the squad with 39 caps to his name. And only six other players had reached double figures in terms of caps, with Hamburg defender Josef Possipal the next most experienced with 16. Fritz Walter was as influential for the Germans as Puskas was for the Hungarians. Herberger built his team and tactics around his captain, but it could have been so different for Walter had events after the war taken an alternative route. In 1945, Walter's airbase surrendered to the Americans as Germany was collapsing. They were then handed over to the Russians and sent to Siberia along with 40,000 German prisoners of war. On his way to almost certain death, they stopped at a Ukrainian detention centre. The camp police were playing a football match and Walter was invited to take part. One of the guards recognised him as having played for Germany and the next day his name was taken off the list of those heading to Siberia. He was allowed to return home to Kaiserslautern and his life changed forever. In many ways, Herberger could be called football's first revolutionary. Herberger employed tactics that included giving his defensive players structured roles, but demanding his attackers make constant positional switches. This became known as the Herberger Whirl. Herberger was the first in a long line of German coaches who believed his job was to field the best team rather than the team of the best players. He was big on team spirit and many of his squad were chosen in the belief they'd contribute to the collective of the group. He prepared the national side for matches with forensic precision, studying pitch and weather conditions and also combining with Adi Dazzler, founder of Adidas, to develop the first adjustable studs so that his players would feel comfortable on the muddy waterlogged pitches of an alpine summer. He was also arguably the first football manager to use video analysis making his team watch films of Hungary's victory at Wembley so as to spot flaws in their game. Despite Herberger's forward-thinking approach, to most folk West Germany were seen as making up the numbers at a World Cup that included the footballing might of Uruguay, Brazil, Austria and the magnificent Magyars of Hungary. Germany and Hungary were drawn into the same first phase group. 
FIFA had decreed each group would have two seeded and two unseeded teams. The two seeds would play the two non-seeds, with the top two teams moving into the knockout stage. If two teams were level on points in first and second, they would draw lots to see who topped the group. If second and third were level, a playoff would decide the outcome. This is how West Germany progressed. They were a little fortunate in the other seeded team alongside Hungary with Turkey. Originally it's supposed to be Spain, but Turkey caused an upset by knocking them out in the qualification. FIFA had already decided the seeds, so they just put Turkey in Spain's place. West Germany saw them off 4-1. Hungary put nine past South Korea, and then beat West Germany by a convincing margin, 8-3. Coxes scored a hat-trick against the Koreans, and then helped himself to four more against the Germans. The golden team were flying. Unbeknownst to them, though, they were about to encounter an incident that would come to bite them later on. Puskas scored to put them 2-0 up. But later in the game, a clumsy challenge from Werner Leibrich caused a hairline fracture of his ankle. He wouldn't be seen again until the final. After the victory against the Turks, Herberg arrested some of his players, believing a long tournament could take its toll on their fitness. Regulars such as Tony Turek, Max Morlock, Otmar Volta and Hans Schaffer all sat on the bench for the Hungry game. Denied the opportunity of confirming qualification by beating South Korea, the Germans were forced to negotiate the lottery of a playoff against Turkey. They were back to full strength, winning 7-2. In the quarter-finals, West Germany eased past Yugoslavia before casting aside Austria in the semis. In the 1930s, Austria were the Wunder team, but after being annexed by Hitler's Germany, post-war Austria wasn't quite the same force. However, it was still a surprise to see West Germany make it to the final. Hungary had a much harder task in front of them. They met the South American rivals, Brazil and Uruguay. The Brazilians were utterly desperate to put right the injustice of losing the 1950 World Cup to their bitter neighbours. These were two classic matches, which have gone down in history. Hungary beat Brazil 4-2 in a match which was dubbed the Battle of Bern, as two Brazilians were sent off. The nasty, rough challenges on the pitch made their way into the dressing room afterwards, with several players and officials receiving injuries. In the semi-finals, Hungary had to take on Uruguay. This was the Olympic champions against the world champions. Now, Olympic football was a big thing in those days, long before any age restrictions were put in place. Uruguay had also been Olympic champions before they won the first World Cup in 1930. After sitting out travelling to the next two tournaments, Uruguay's second World Cup appearance was in Brazil in 1950, and they won that too. They were yet to lose a World Cup match at this stage. Hungary were 2-0 up, but Uruguay came back to level things and take it to extra time. However, two headers from Coxis saw Hungary into the final. Remember, you can own a unique piece of artwork depicting your favourite midfield icon in full swing. Whether you go gaga for Gerard or nuts for Nedved, check out www.footballpink.shop to see the Football Pink's entire artwork collection. The final was expected to be the sort of mauling the earlier group stage meeting had been. Hungary were unbeaten in their previous 32 matches, going back over four years. They had some of the best players in world football. West Germany, on the other hand, were a group of part-timers that few people outside their country had heard of, and who were perhaps seen to have bluffed their way to the final with some lucky match-ups. It looked to be all set for a thumping. However, heavy rain had made the pitch muddy and difficult to come to terms with. This is where things began to swing in Germany's favour. Firstly, their captain was known for excelling in such conditions. 
So much so, there was a phrase in Germany, Fritz Walter Wetter, or Fritz Walter Weather. But crucially, they were playing in boots with screwing studs, which could be adjusted to adapt to the conditions. And this meant they were wearing footwear more familiar to them rather than having to change. Another factor was where Hungary had based themselves, in the town of Solotern. As the semi-final against Uruguay went into extra time, they missed their bus and only got back late at night. The night before the final, the town had a fair near the team's hotel and the noise disrupted many of the players' sleep. The early stages of the match did little to suggest that this would be anything other than a Hungarian success. The game was barely six minutes old when Bozic intercepted a pass from Liebrich. He played Coxus in and his shot was blocked, but Puskas was on hand to tap the ball in for the opening goal. Just two minutes later, they had doubled their lead. A misunderstanding in the German defence saw Werner Kohlmeier's back pass wrongfoot the keeper and Chaibor burst in to score the second, 2-0. But just as some were beginning to wonder whether this would be another eight-goal drubbing, the Germans hit back. Fritz Walter played Rahn in down the left. His low cross into the area wasn't cleared and Morlock turned the ball in to make it 2-1 to Hungary. Eight minutes later and the two sides were back level again. Walter took what was Germany's third corner in succession and his high ball to the far post was turned in by Rahn, 2-2. What a start to the game with four goals in just 18 minutes. Hungary soon resumed control though. Hidekuti had a couple of good chances to score with the second hitting the post. Then, just before the break, Rahn thought he'd scored again only to see Yenu Buzaski clear off the line. 2-2 at the break and in the second period, Hungary really took the game to their opponents. Pushkas fired a shot straight at Turek. Kocic headed against the crossbar, and both Chibor and Hidakuti probably should have done better with their opportunities. And with six minutes left, Schaefer crossed into the box. Rahn picked up the loose clearance and fainted to pass, giving himself room to drive a low left-foot shot past Gulia Grosic. Amazingly, West Germany were now leading 3-2. The radio commentary of Rahn's goal in Bern has taken on a similar status in German football culture to Kenneth Wollstenholme's famous They Think It's All Over, It Is Now in England's 1966 win. Herbert Zimmerman's voice rang out from radios across West Germany. Ran shoots! Ran shoots! Goal! 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 Goal for Germany! Germany lead 3-2! Call me mad! Call me crazy! Undeterred, the Hungarians came back straight away. Pushkas was sent clear and beat Turek to equalise. Or so he thought. Immediately, the linesman flagged for offside. The Hungarians were incensed. Surely this was too close to call. Then Chaibor had a chance, but it was denied by Turek. Eventually, the final whistle went, and West Germany had pulled off a remarkable shock result. The supposed no-marks, defeating a team that were widely accepted to be the best on the planet, to lift the greatest trophy in world football. The match would forever be immortalised as the miracle of Bern. During the years that followed, many deliberated on how it was that the mighty Magyars failed at this final hurdle. For them, what happened in Bern was a travesty rather than a miracle. But if you pick apart the tournament, you can see how gradually a number of factors started to build up, which would ultimately thwart the Hungarians. Hungary had a much tougher route through the knockout phase in West Germany, followed by a late finish in the semi-final. 
Then there were disruptive local celebrations outside their hotel on the eve of the final. And on the day of the match, the heavy rain made Hungary's passing game less effective and played into the hands of the Germans, who had sensibly worn boots that were adapted to the conditions. Add in Pushkas struggling for fitness and the chalking off of his goal, you begin to see this glorious team suffer death by a thousand cuts. The fallout couldn't have been more different for each nation. In Budapest, there were demonstrations in the streets. The team had been welcomed as heroes after their Olympic gold medal in 1952, but now, two years later, the players were hiding in a nearby town waiting for things to calm down. There are even some who believe that the seeds of the 1956 revolution were sown in the days after the final. Despite the setback in Switzerland, however, Hungary weren't yet finished as a force. The Magyars carried on their incredible record after the competition, with one defeat in 49 games over a five-year period. Eventually, though, the run petered out. Shebez was replaced and everything began to dismantle. Hungarian football would never be the same again, this proud footballing nation having to contend itself with a lifetime of what might have been. In the modern era, Hungary have suffered the same fate as other small European countries, as the greater resources and population of their rivals have seen them settle into life as a middling nation who rarely qualify for major tournaments, let alone threaten to win them. That they did not manage to lift the Gilles Rimi trophy during their period as the finest nation in world football is a source of sorrow to both Hungarians and neutrals alike, the name of the magnificent Magyars being sorely missed from the list of countries who have won the World Cup. By contrast, the Germans couldn't really believe what had happened to them. Herberger's plans had worked perfectly. Hungary looked a little tired when they got to the final, whereas the German coach had rested some players to make sure they were fully fit once they reached Bern. Rand's goal was seen by some as the goal that built a nation, and the scenes that followed backed that idea up. Thousands crammed the railway stations to welcome die Mannschaft home, and the streets were packed with jubilant fans as the team went on a nationwide tour to show off the Gilles Rimé trophy. One writer described it as a guilt-ridden, inhibited nation was suddenly reborn. National pride was no longer a taboo subject. They'd regained their self-esteem. Even in victory, though, Germany's relationship with nationalism caused some anxiety. During one of the trophy parades, the jubilant crowd burst into the pre-war imperialist version of the national anthem, Deutschland über alles, rather than the revised version. The controversy that followed was evidence of a nation that was still having a conversation with itself over how to move on from its difficult past. The impact of the miracle of Bern on footballing matters, though, is less complicated. Quite simply, it kick-started West German football's inexorable rise to world domination, which could be seen in the 1970s and right up to 1990. Upon German unification, that mantle of dominance was taken up by the unified German side, who most recently lifted the World Cup in 2014. They may now be second only to Brazil in terms of number of World Cup victories, but Germans of a certain age remember that this international success wasn't always guaranteed. For them, the miracle of Bern remains their country's greatest sporting achievement and represents so much more than just a game. You have been listening to the Football Pink podcast. For more stories like this one, please subscribe to the podcast and visit footballpink.net.